Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Welcome to Still Watching Sharp Objects, an unofficial podcast about the HBO series Sharp Objects. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair's Sharp Object Richard Lawson. <laughs> Each week we will break down the latest episode and occasionally feature interviews with people who've worked on the show itself. We're also, if you've if you've been following along with our other Still Watching series, we did Westworld previously and the assassination of Johnny Versace. Uh, we're introducing something new in this current iteration of the podcast, which is a book reader section that will come at the very end of the episode. We will just touch on a few things that we noticed uh, in the episode that would specifically resonate with uh book readers who know what's coming so I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to call it a spoiler section but it's more like a I don't know foreshadowing section hints to come section at the end of the podcast you'll have a lot of warning before we do that though so if you're worried about spoilers we will not get into spoilers in the episode itself uh the main part but at the end uh there might be a few a few spoilers lurking there and- think about it like how um everyone skips past Mark Maron's introduction to his interviews <laughs> But this will just be at the end. So you don't actually have to skip past anything. You can just stop listening to the episode. Yeah. Just lock the gates and get on with the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> so before we get to all of that, uh, we are going to break down uh, the first episode of this season. Season one, episode one. The title is Vanish, which we find out uh, maybe why that's the title at the very end of the episode. The director, as it will be for all these episodes, is Jean-Marc Vallée. And the credited writer is Jillian Flynn, who wrote the book also, Sharp Objects. Now, are we a Jillian podcast or are we a Gillian podcast? Oh, it's Gillian, right? I'm, yeah. It's Gillian. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> In this house, we pronounce the hard G. Gillian right. Jacobs, Gillian Flynn, Jillian Anderson. All right. Gillian Jacobs. Yeah, Gillian Jacobs because her friends call her Gilly. <laughs> right. Gillian Flynn, Jillian Anderson. Got it. We'll never, ever make that mistake again. Um, 
so yeah, before we, you know, we're going to do the, the thing, the same thing we always do, which is run down the episode. But Richard, before we do that, I know you watched a f- like first couple episodes and then we both just rewatched uh, the episode again, the first episode again this morning on this fine Sunday morning when we are recording. Uh, what were your thoughts on the second go around of the first episode? I liked it. I, I, I liked it more than the first go around. Um, I, I really appreciate the texture that Valet kind of yeah. uh, applies to this material. You know, we he we talked in our little intro episode about why he kind of works for this because it's a memory piece and he's so good with that sort of collagey, stitched together kind of impressionistic. You know, you go in and out of time and and memory and stuff. So it, it's a really good fit for this material, and I think that it adds an extra element to what could otherwise be a pretty straightforward mystery series you know i think he's adding the sort of like he's 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 earning the amy adams of it yeah you know um i was reading uh, um yep hard g gillian and gillian flynn gave a uh, a great interview uh to make megan abbott in uh, vanity fair you guys can go read it if you want to it's called gillian flynn isn't going to write the kind of women you want uh it's a great conversation between uh two two novelists and they have the section in there, which like I agree with 99% of what they say in there. And then they have the section that I actually a little bit disagree with um, because they, they were both pushing back on the notion of, of this HBO series being a successor of some kind to big little lies. Uh, and, and let me quote uh, Gillian Flynn by saying, um, she says, just because it has women in it does not make it Big Little Lies, which I love, by the way. But anyone who watches this hoping they're going to get Big Little Lies is going to be like, what the fuck have you sold me? Jesus Christ. I think Variety got it right when they said it's not Big Little Lies, it's True Detective. But instead of Matthew McConaughey waxing on about what it is to be man, it's looking at what it is to be a woman. And I hope that it doesn't turn men off because it's a great detective show. So I agree with all that. Like, you know, I wouldn't want to from like a superficial gendered point of view to say, oh, HBO did a female fronted show in Big Little Lies and now they're doing one with sharp objects but the Jean-Marc Vallée of it all I think really unites those two properties pretty closely in in my mind uh what do you think of that yeah no I, I think that you know this it, it, it's not just in in terms of Vallée it's it's HBO well I guess now there's going to be a big little live season two but it's HBO committing to this kind of like auteury um not that Valet wrote the episodes, but you know, this kind of like singular vision for how a, a run of episodes should look and feel. And I like that they're going that direction. And, you know, I guess True Detective did kind of kick that off. And, but this is a much more fruitful um, version of that than, say, True Detective season two. Right. And also, you know, these are adaptations of books that, um, while I, I like both books, I think they are given both of them were given richer texture texture by their HBO adaptation Um, because sharp objects is at the end of the day, like it's, it's a, it's an interesting exploration of the female psyche, obviously, but it's also, um, you know, this is a, 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 pop boiler mystery you know the same same yeah. is true of gone girl like w- what happened between the page and the screen with gone girl i think really uh, it's not like it elevated but it really dug into the thing that flynn does so intelligently and really highlights and underlines those things in a cinematic way both this tv show and that uh, fincher film so yeah um, it's hard it's hard to capture the tone of a book exactly on on film or on television right. and i think that what fincher did so brilliantly in gone girl was exactly that like he you know it helped that gillian flynn wrote the screenplay obviously but like just there's a there's a, a kind of ineffable mood that you get when reading her writing right. and these directors are 
able to tease it out, probably because they worked closely with the author. Exactly. Gillian Flynn was involved very intimately in both of these things. As we said, she has a writing credit on this. We should also mention just the last thing before we dive into the episode itself. Uh, Marty Knoxon as showrunner. If you didn't listen to our preview episode, um, I think this is like a perfect storm of these three sensibilities of Gillian Flynn's um, interest in, um, I don't know, I don't like the word likability or hard to like or whatever but um i do like what gillian flynn does with that concept so i'm just gonna say hard to like women even though that's not exactly how i feel uh what jean marc valet does with with memory and trauma and then what marty noxon does with like bodily harm uh which is something that she's very fascinated in Mm -hmm. and so all of those things coming together marty noxon as we mentioned had worked on buffy unreal and uh this great film to the bone which is on netflix um about eating disorders and um all of this coming together i think this is like the dream creative team for this particular project i think it's amazing so uh let us start we start with the town itself wind gap uh it's it's a it's a worn out um idea to say like oh the town it's a it's a character into itself in the in the story but like getting getting what wind gap is right is i think deeply important because this is not a story set in new york or la or chicago or any of the places that we have shorthand for this is a um small economically in some aspects depressed missouri town that um I think Camille at one point says there's like old money and trash and that's that's it. Those are the two options in that town. So Yeah, it's a hog killing town. It's they've they've got processing plants, I guess. Um yeah. slaughterhouses. Um and this is a this is a milieu that Gillian Flynn is pretty fascinated by. She she's from Missouri. Um obviously Gone Girl takes place in a kind of depressed Missouri town that the the characters return to after kind of a failed stint in New York. Uh, so here we have not a failed stint in New York, but a sort of failing stint in St. Louis uh, in 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 our main character. Yeah, and uh, in that interview that I mentioned, that's in uh, on VF.com right now. Um, Gillian Flynn makes no bones about the fact that Camille is uh, based on her in in some aspects. She said she she showed up to set the first day and Amy Adams in costume, I presume in the black jeans and the gray sweatshirt was wearing exactly what Gillian Flynn was wearing that day. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) She's like, we have a photo of ourselves side by side to prove it. So, you know, this is, this is definitely our our author proxy. Gillian Flynn was a journalist before she became a novelist and uh, now, you know, screenwriter. And so, you know, uh, any of this, you can't go home again stuff uh, is, is deeply personal, I think to her. So, um, and then we get our first, like, we are in flashback. And this is when I got really excited about, you know, right from the jump, I got really excited about what Valet could do, because we see Sophia Lillis, who was in the film It last year, as a young version of Camille of Amy Adams, and she's skating down a road with with her sister, Marion. And um, we see them sneak into this house. And, and then they're in um Camille's bedroom and it sort of happened so quickly that I I actually had to rewind because I wasn't paying enough attention the first time I was like wait what just happened at well, first fu- sorry go ahead yeah it's funny because like in this little survey of the town you see Bush Gore f- posters a Bush post uh, uh sorry right. um 
a gore whatever poster you know so you, it, you're like okay so we're in the 90s and then they go into this house and they go upstairs and then there's an obama poster and you're like wait so when does this take place and then you realize oh no we're now in the future and what he's used this kind of cinematic trick to sew the past into the present yeah he uses doors a lot like you open a yeah. door and all of a sudden you're like in the past in the present whatever um yeah, the Obama poster kind of threw me because I was like, "Oh, have we have we moved the timeline up this much?" I don't know. I sorry, I got I got bogged down in it, um, trying to do the mental math of like if a flashback could take place during the Obama campaign, and I'm right. like, "No, it hasn't been that long, right?" Um, and also, I thought I I mistakenly thought the first time I saw it that it was supposed to denote Chicago because in the book she's uh she's in Chicago, not St. Louis, and so I was like, "Oh yeah, Obama, Chicago, here we are," but no, um. So, and then we get uh, this great moment where the young Camille uses a paperclip to sort of jab the present day Camille awake. Uh, and there's a lot of that too, a lot of um, jerking awake, falling asleep, jerking awake happening in, in the show. And um, I did I did point out in the note that this this is a sharp object that she used. Yeah, to- we, we are on our first sharp object. Congratulations. It's, it's Sharp Object Watch. Uh, this is the first one. Although I guess you could argue that there's a, the, a motif of a rotating fan. Those oh, blades are sharp yeah. objects. So I don't know, man. Oh, we're, we're, we, are, we are deep in the sharp objects already. It's true. Also, I would say, I would argue the women themselves are sharp objects. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the um, the house we should mention is this insane, um, I believe it's a Queen Anne, I think that's the style um, but it's got, you know, these like an insane turret and this huge wraparound porch and it's like, you know, I, I you know, hats off to the location scout who who found that particular house, but um, we find out later in the episode that it, you know, there is a dollhouse that features heavily in the plot that is based on um, the house, and so this idea I think you mentioned this in our preview episode of of um, the Krellen family living in a life-size dollhouse is, is sort of the feeling we're supposed to get. Yeah, and the house is so incongruous to what we've seen of the town so far. It's like right. you wouldn't expect there to be this like opulent sort of storybook mansion in this depressed sort of, you know, forgotten Midwestern town. But I think that something that the show does interestingly, as does the book that I, from what I remember, is that like, is highlighting that there can be weird little pockets of wealth surrounded by the lack of it, you know, right. and, and, and what kind of stratification that creates in the community. Um, I, something that I noticed this time, you know, like she gets, she gets this assignment from her, from her editor, um, who is maybe one of my new favorite, like on screen editors who like, you know, like, <laughs> We have editors and there are editors that like lean into the stereotype of editors and editors that don't. But like, um, I love this. Like he calls her kiddo. Um, but then, you know, when she says no pressure, he says life is pressure, grow up. And it's like, don't you want, don't you want an editor to like call you kiddo, but then like give you a tough, tough assignments that tells you you can rise to be the challenge. If you're like listening, that. Katie. <laughs> Um, no, I think, and, and he, the, the editor's name is Frank. He's played by Miguel Sandoval, who is this great long-term character actor who almost exclusively, I feel like, plays like Colombian drug lords. Uh, you know, he's in like, um, 
clear and present danger is one of the kind of main bad guys in that. And like, he's had a long career, but he doesn't often get to play this kind of character. So it's really fun to see him sort of playing not against his own type, but against the type he's normally cast in. And he does a lot of great glasses work. He's got these reading glasses that he puts on and off for effect just in this one scene. Uh, So he's really, he's really tearing into this kind of rumpled, but commanding editor role. And it's a really convincing and really great table setting scene. I love it. And uh, I think it has a mirror in the later scene where she's talking to the the chief of police. Um, like, yeah. Um, I noticed because, you know, I'm on the lookout for character names to remind myself. And I was like, oh, another desk with a name placard on it um, later in the episode. But anyway, um, and then we get we get like the first indication of um, Camille's relationship with alcohol, unhealthy relationship with alcohol, which uh will be made very clear by the length of <laughs> by the end of this episode but something that i didn't notice the first time i was even watching and something i didn't even really notice that much when i was reading the book which i just did this last month um is she's got these you know she's got little bottles of alcohol that she she drinks and she stores and they clink and she lines them up and it's this whole like therapeutic thing that she does but then she also has um all this candy and you see like this Abba Zabba wrapper, I think, when she's like packing to go home. And I was like, oh, I don't know why I hadn't put it together the candy thing because it's in the book. But it, it's um, it just underlines her like her stunted adolescence. You know what I mean? And and the way that she drinks is like a like a guilty, furtive teenager more than it is like a hardened adult with a drinking problem. I mean, we, we see some of that like when she's in the bar and stuff like that. But a lot of times her drinks are are taken sneakily. Yeah, um, and and she's drinking out of little you know air, airplane bottles. She's yeah. not committing to the handle of vodka, you know. Right. So there's this kind of sense of like, well, I'm just having this one little one. Okay, not another one. You know, there's not. She does have a carton of cigarettes, which is sort of um, uh, shamefully. I am a smoker, but I never buy cartons because then that means I'm going to smoke ten packs of cigarettes. You know. <laughs> so I think with her, yeah. she's like, I'm not going to buy the full bottle. I'm just going to do this. But like, obviously, the bottles add up. Yes. Um, and there's an interesting thing, too, about the candy is that a lot of people in recovery, whether from alcohol or uh, from opiates, um, they crave sweets. And so yeah. if you go to like, you know, meetings or whatever, like they have a lot of candy and stuff. And so she's kind of doing both. She's like indulging in the in the alcohol, but also the kind of candy afterwards. So yeah. she's dwelling in this very like conflicted place um, and is clearly a mess. Uh, definitely a mess, uh, though. Her hair looks amazing. And um yeah, just uh, you're right. You're right about the carton of cigarettes. But when she dumped that bag out and it was like little bottles, candy, cigarettes, Altoids, I was like, yeah, this is these are all things like a teen would steal. It feels yeah. like to me. Mm-hmm. Maybe not the carton of cigarettes. In a brown paper bag, like exactly, like like she hides under her bed or something. Like it's right. very exactly. childish. This is her trove of like indulgences. So, um, and then we get this. Yeah, so she she decides to take the assignment. She decides to go home. And the assignment um, is that a girl has gone missing right. uh, in her hometown, and that uh, previously, the I think the previous year, a, a girl was murdered. She was strangled to death. And so Frank, the editor, is like, "This could be a serial. Um, you know, you have a personal touch to add to this story. You know, this guy in Chicago wrote this great story about his hometown. Like, this could be good for you." So she's reluctantly agrees to uh, get in her beat up old Volvo and drive down there. I love her Volvo, the maroon. It's Volvo. so good. I don't really necessarily believe that that, that model of Volvo, which I believe is from the '80s, would still be running now. But like, hey, maybe, they're good cars, so maybe, maybe so. 
It's my favorite. Like I like so many moms I knew had that Volvo in the eighties. Oh, 80s. it's like the classic. Yeah, absolutely. The maroon or the blue. You either yeah. had the maroon Volvo yeah. or the blue one. Anyway, you almost so- wanted it to look ugly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like that was kind so of the she- point. <laughs> so she, we get we get a lot of flashbacks sort of seeded throughout this of, um, you know, like. So Sophia Lillis as the young Camille in the town um, and specifically, you know, on her way home to look into these, what happened to these young girls who were like essentially the age of this flash flashback version of her. Um, she stops at this motel on the way. And this is a sequence that I, that dragged for me the first time I saw it. And then I really loved the second time I thought I saw it when I thought about it a bit more, which is, um, you know, she has, she has a lot of different flashes, like uh, the toilet trigger something for her, which we will get to later. The, um, she sees someone in the mirror. That's not her younger version of herself. It's someone else. Um, this all has to do with a plot line, like tiny plot line from the book that I think they're going, I don't know because I haven't seen the episodes, but I think they're really going to flesh out, um, in the season. Um, and, and that is all tied to this phone, this broken phone that she keeps playing music from. Yeah. It's not her phone. She has a functioning phone. It could um, be it. It could be an iPod touch or iPhone touch or whatever. Yeah. It's um, a device with a broken, a shattered screen and a lot of music on it. Oh, and we should mention also that Frank, the editor says it could be good for you, you know, like shake some things off. Like there's something has happened to her recently right? where she's like trying to get back to center or something. Right. Um, and that's, I think one of the projects of this eight episode run is kind of piecing together what that is exactly. Right. And I think this is all part of that. Um, but she's in this motel. It's this dialogue-less sequence. She doesn't have a single line of dialogue and all this. It's all memory, um, drinking, and then she masturbates and it like flashes back to like a, a sexual, a disturbing sexual, uh, I wouldn't even count it, call it an encounter, like awakening or whatever she had as a kid when she stumbled into this hunting cabinet where there's like disgusting drying meat and then like images, pornographic images on the wall. And it's just sort of like a, a nice little intro to the, um, like carnal lurid you know sexual sickness that feels like it exists in wind gap you know just the yeah. juxtaposition of those images of the drying meat and um the pornography and the pornography is is like it's sort of of a bdsm varietal um i was actually i mean not because i was doing this for for work i i paused <laughs> to see what you could actually what they actually showed yeah like because you know you're not supposed you're not allowed to show penetration on like regular television or whatever even premium television and i think they kind like they, it seems like the images they sort of like fudged it but like it's pretty graphic and it's this kind of um when i was like 11 years old 12, i was like at my my dad had business in in washington dc and i went with him we stayed at this bed and breakfast and he went off to his meeting and i was just like at the bed and breakfast and i was looking around their shelves at this house and they had all these old national geographics and i was like oh that's cool like let me let me find more and i opened a cabinet and it was full of these like hardcore porn porn magazines like straight porn uh-huh. and it was like horrifying but also like alluring in a way so i think that like that's exactly what this moment captures the kind of sick but also seductive nature of this whole thing um which i think informs so much of adolescence you know like you're kind of like repulsed by something but also drawn to it um and i think you're right yeah the sort of sexual sickness of this town is like a pretty deft wordless illustration of a mood uh in these opening scenes 
Yeah, this cabin, a mood. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to return to this scene and why I think it's so uh, long and important later in the book section uh, at the mm-hmm. end of the episode. But uh, the, I guess the length of it really irritated me the first time I saw it. And then I felt like I understood better why it was there. So, And, and there are some teenage boys who are sort of like – she kind of follows them to this cabin in a way and they, they're hunting. They have guns. One of them points them at her. So there's a sense of danger already brewing. Yeah. Her as a, as a target. And, um, we should say on, on the, on the trend of, of, uh, surrealism in this show, when she's leaving St. Louis, the, 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 the roadside says last exit to change your mind. So um, <laughs> yeah. I missed that the first time, but I don't know uh, if we should look for other, I don't know, manipulated signs to be like inside her head. Um, but yeah, so so then we get Camille actually entering as, as an adult entering Wingap, coming home again. The first, one of the first things she sees is the memorial for the girls, like uh, both the memorial for the girl who died and, and sort of one for the one who's missing. Um and she pulls up to an alleyway next to the police station. There's like missing signs uh, on the light on um, the light post, and then we get this interaction in the police station, which I I love. This is her first interaction with a, a Wind Gap townsperson, and um, and the girl and the woman behind the counter. I think it takes her like three questions before she asks Camille if she has kids. And it's in context of what they're talking about. They're talking about the missing girls um, or the missing girl. They're talking about what that does to a parent in the town, how you feel about your child and stuff like that. But this is something that Sharp Objects does really like the book. And I hope the show does really well, which is um, explore what it means to be like a woman to go home or to go to a place where a lot of women have followed a um, prescribed trajectory of marriage and kids and to not have followed that path and the discomfort that you can feel uh, in that situation. You know what I mean? It was just like, um, once again, it's in context, but it's an early question that we will, if I have, you know, if my guess is right, we will hear again and again. uh, Yeah. And, and the, and the, the woman she's speaking to, um, you know, talks about how, She's like, kind of like, you're lucky almost to not have kids right now because I, I barely let them leave the house, um, you know, with some sort of predator around. Um, you know, we let them sleep in the bed. None of us are getting any sleep, but at least we know they're safe. Um, you know, so there's a sense of the town on lockdown. Yeah. Uh, and that there's a real, I mean, obvious sense of unease and no one's getting any sleep, but like, so yeah, so, so her kind of entering this space and wandering around it freely is sort of in, in stark juxtaposition to how everyone else in the town is living. So it's just kind of setting her even further apart. Yeah. And we saw, you know, in, in the opening shots, um, which of the town, which were, I think were supposed to be flashback as well, but like, empty streets you know what i mean like if someone's out there fanning themselves you know so you're like okay it's 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 run down it's deserted and it's hot like these are these are all uh just the sense of place is so strong and um in that uh gillian flynn interview that i will keep referencing that's on vf.com they talked about sort of a tennessee williams vibe a sort of hot house um i think what gillian flynn said is like you get the sense that if you left your car parked there for too long the tendrils would overtake it and just sort of like absorb it into the town itself so um yeah, that that whole thing, and and I think you get that really well in this next scene, which is um, her, you know, meeting or reacquainting herself with the with the chief of police, 
and um, played by Matt Craven. Um, Again, another character actor who's in everything and yeah. <laughs> here gets a little bit more of a juicy role, which is nice. And, uh, you know, we see exactly what her editor said is that she can kind of or try to leverage her local angle to get more access than any other outside reporter would. She says, you know, like who she is, who her mother is, who her sister is. Um, he has a weird reaction when she brings up her sister's name. And, uh, and he says something to her. He's like, oh, you're the one who mm, you left or something. He kind of uh, like trails off. And like, right. so obviously it's rare for someone to leave and p- perhaps even rare for that person to come back. Yeah. And I think I, uh, once again, I actually don't know a thousand percent what he's alluding to here, but it also seems like he wanted to say something else, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're the one who something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're that sharp object. Oh, you're that sharp object that left town. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, we mentioned this is like a hog butchering town. There's a lot of hog imagery uh, in uh, his office. He's got like the squeezy hog, but also like hog statues. It's just, you know, uh, and he's a cop. It's all. It's all and you kind of imagine that it must smell a little bit. Oh, God. It looked like know? it reeked in there. Because, you know, yeah. like, I don't. There's a way to shoot someone smoking in a room where it doesn't look like it's like cloying and disgusting and then there's a way you know i think with the fan going in the window and the like yeah. sheen of sweat you're just like oh my god it smells yeah. terrible in there and maybe some like hog smell wafting in from that fan you know sure. just like ugh. <laughs> hog on the breeze yeah hog wind- on the wind <laughs> wind gap welcome yeah. <laughs> to me smell like hogs here okay um i'm claire fallon and i'm emma gray we're culture writers podcasters and hosts of the show love to see it Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Then they've got this, she's got this great device. They've got this great device um, at the ready in this in this TV series, which actually she used uh, in the book as well, even though she didn't need to. Uh, and that's the thing about Gillian Flynn is that she, because she wrote about film and television for so long for Entertainment Weekly and other outlets, like she has a really filmic sense when she writes her novels, I think. And so... This device of Camille calling her editor and telling him what she found out yeah. um, is good exposition. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to sit there and listen to like Vickery say anything or whatever. She's just like, this is what I've learned. And you've got a uh, character driven human interaction between the two of them to, you know, his concern for her, her, you know, stubborn, I can do this, whatever it is she's giving off. Um to like enhance it it's not just like straight exchange of information and like i said like this is something that they didn't that that gillian flynn didn't need to do in the book she could have just like written it out because you can write out exposition in a book and get away with it but she did do these phone calls um which i think um is just her yeah the way her brain works when she puts together a story so um yes and I like, I don't know. Okay. Here's where I want to check in and ask you what you think of Camille as a character and, or Amy Adams portrayal of her. Um, I mean, it's hard because she's so withholding, you know, and, and I think that um, in some ways the risk that HBO is taking is that like, it's going to take some time to sort of get in with her. And, And I think that like introducing younger her is a, 
helps that, you know, you're sort of immediately more sympathetic because you, you know that she has history and you see kind of glimpses of that history. Um, but I think that, um, viewers hoping for a sort of immediate connection and an immediate immersion into the story are maybe going to be a little bit alienated for a little while. And I don't want to like talk more about stuff I've seen past this episode, but like it's, this is a slow build into both a, a character and a performance. But I think that what she's doing is actually really good. And it's rare that we see sort of Amy Adams in particular working in this muted, but still very expressive mode. So they've, um, I, I think there's something about Amy Adams. Um, and I guess maybe I, I would say that, um, okay, well, first I'll say this, <laughs> that they've aged up both her character and her, the younger sister, Emma. Yes. A- Emma, as played by Eliza Scanlon, aged up only by a few years, I would say, probably like three or four. Um, but the Camille in the book is like in her, I think, early 30s. Uh, and Amy Adams uh, is not. But um, I, th- I think she's playing late 30s. Though. Late 30s. Yeah, exactly. That's what I would but say. Um, if we like 20 year it, you know, like that 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 tracks just about you know 20 yeah, yeah. plus years yeah yeah and um and that makes sense for like it just the ages make sense for all of them i think if yeah. like if amy was the first one cast and then patricia clarkson analyzes scanlon to fill out like that sort of trinity uh because uh patricia clarkson's character adora had you know camille when she was quite young and so that's that's a thing that that all tracks for me but the- and clarkson has to play both timelines Oh, right, right, right. You know, um, so, like, they have to cast someone kind of in the middle. Like, she's not actually really old enough, I mean, to be Amy Adams' mom, like, in real life. But, like, right. it works for the – anyway. But the – no, 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 I, I agree with you. But the the Amy Adams element that I think is, works interestingly in this is that she is um, so likable in so much of what she does Um and once again, likable is not a word that I like to use that much, but like, um, you know, you think of some of her, some of the roles or some of the roles that made her big, like, um, enchanted, you know, she's played a Disney princess. She can do that and she can do other things. Um, definitely. But like, that's, she does have this like, um, America's sweetheart quality about her. Yeah, so I mean, she grew, she grew up Mormon. She used to do dinner theater. You know, she kind of first came onto the scene as this goofy girl with braces, and you can um, catch me if you can. Right. You know, and and she has so she has that and Junebug her breakthrough like what she oh, yeah. um you know was Oscar so nominated good. for. She's this kind of guileless, sweet you know yeah. country bumpkin kind of person. And yet, if you look at her career, whether it's Arrival or The Fighter or um you know, uh, the master, like she's done a lot of darker, seri- more serious stuff, but she's still, for whatever reason, associated with Enchanted and, you know, whatever else. Well, I was going to say that I just, I like her in those roles. Yeah. Like in the fighter or in Arrival was what I was thinking of in terms of like how inaccessible she is at times in that film as well, Yeah, you know, but like there is just an innate, warmth and accessibility that even when she's playing someone as like spiky and defensive and uh sarcastic as she is in this show um 
I think you have an advantage in that it's Amy Adams doing that, you know, versus someone else. Um, and so like, like I said, I'm not, I'm not trying to hunt down likability. I don't yeah. need that from her, but I, I think accessibility, which is the sort of the word that you brought up, I think is, is more important. And I think she brings that even through the layers of, of defensiveness, you know? Yeah. You know, and obviously like the, her best work is in her, is in her best films, which are of course the Batman and Superman movies, uh, in which she plays Lois Lane and is given a ton to do. And it's really worth <laughs> a six time, a five time Oscar nominee being in the films, obviously. So if you're, if you want to see more about more of Amy Adams, what, what she really can do, go see Batman for Superman, but, but we'll have to settle for this for now with this. Yeah. This other take on journalism. Um, but so, and then, then, uh, so Camille meets these roller girls. Uh, I am obsessed with the decisions that they made here. She sees them fleetingly at first, like in down that alleyway when she's going to the, the police station and you don't know, maybe if you're watching the first time, you don't know if that's a memory of, uh, herself and her sister, but the, the long hair, uh, is what denotes the two, uh, groups of roller roller skating girls and these three girls with their blonde hair red hair brown hair and their roller skates and the way that they sort of like stalk through the town is incredible i think it's amazing it's not in the book this this roller skating thing is not in the book and i think it just like first of all whenever i see someone on roller skate i think of the film return to oz and the wheelies the wheelers whatever they're called they're terrifying so like like wheeled groups of people uh really scare me <laughs> innately um but these see this is what i think i think of starlight express so oh okay you felt you know, joy that's and just how different we are of wonder. <laughs> um but what i think is interesting about about these these this this pack of girls on their roller skates uh it's a little anachronistic you know yes. uh, in a way but also the way that they their presence in the town in this otherwise empty town is, you know, itself an act of transgression because again, everyone is on lockdown and like kids are not supposed to be out, but they're sort of either in defiance of their parents or their parents don't know or whatever it is. Um, there they are sort of stalking the town, um, as kind of sore thumbs as, as Camille is, you know, but in different ways. Yeah. Um, I, I do this other podcast, Storm Spoilers, where we were like reading this book for a book club. And like, so I'm going to, I'm going to just shamelessly steal an observation from one of those listeners. Um, and if you listener want to write into us, we are at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. You can email us your observations, but this listener made this really interesting observation that I'm just going to keep coming back to because it kind of blew my mind of this idea of, um, witches and trinities. In sharp objects. So if you take the Krellen family, you've got um, Adora as like the crone, even though I would never call Patricia Clarkson a crone, but like Adora uh, is like it's main mother crone, right? Um, and so you sort of have like the Amy Adams character and then um, Emma, these like these three women. And if you look at the just even the art for um the show just like the long hair the in this like strawberry red family just like what these this trinity of women represent but then you also have these pack of three Mm -hmm. um these like weird sisters they're also very witchy to me and um so i just i i'm gonna be on the lookout and probably be obnoxious about leaning into this theme that i think is definitely part of the text and something that I missed myself when I read it the first time. So. Yeah, there's definitely there's 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 the smell of hog in the wind, but there's also some Stevie Nicks on the wind. <laughs> you know, she's there somewhere. 
just floating around. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and, and the blonde one, who we will later find out is um, Camille's sister, says... Half-sister, like, half I think, is an important designation yes. there. Uh, so her mother remarried, uh, and she doesn't really know her. She's obviously aware of her and knew her as a kid, but like they haven't seen each other in a long time. So she wouldn't necessarily recognize her all grown up. Yeah. Which like slightly, slightly stretches believability, but I believe. Yeah. Um, she, ha- she makes some comment later about like mom really need, like stop sending those Christmas cards a long time ago. So I didn't know it was you basically. Um, yeah. Her half sister, Marion is also her half sister. So, um, you know, I guess that's where the blondiness comes in, but, um, the the blonde Emma says this place is so totally dead. <laughs> You're like great, 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 great. Um, and also in the woods here, Camille remembers has a flashback to herself, still by by Sophia Lillis, but now I think supposed to be older, um, because she's got long hair, or maybe it's before she cut her hair off. I'm not sure, but in a cheerleading uniform, I think she's supposed to be older. Um, sort of running through the woods, being chased, and then we meet. Christmasina as a detective Richard Willis. Uh, what do you think of this intro to this character? This, um, you know, this feels like the most, um, his character and even the performance a little bit, like feels like the most like cop show, yeah. you know, aspect of this series uh, or this episode at least like, cause it's, it's a little bantery and he's a little sharp and he's, you know, he's, he says he's from Kansas city. So he's like a big city cop kind of like in, in, in a small town. So he's kind of fish out of water too, which feels much more like a conventional narrative. Um, so I'm not sure if it quite fits into the sort of the rest of the texture of the show, which is much more subtle and sort of arty, I guess, but um, he's, serves a necessary function obviously so we you know and, and christmas scene is always welcome uh yeah and we get this shot of his back and it's just like dripping with sweat yeah. um so welcome welcome to wind gap um hog, hogs on the wind um so then we meet my favorite character of the series yeah. uh which is jackie o'neill played by elizabeth perkins and i guess if christmas Cena is like looks like he wandered out of a cop show uh i don't know what we think some gothic something is what Jackie O'Neill wandered out of. I love Elizabeth Perkins. This character, and and this is no slight on her because I I this is all positive. This character is grotesque in a way that I adore. Uh, yeah. What do you think of Jackie? Well, yeah. So she's so Camille goes to the woods to join the search effort for right. this missing teenage girl. And she sees Jackie, who's got like a little table set up, and she's sitting in her chair drinking, kind of making a party. Yeah, Yeah, she's tailgating. (laughs) Exactly. She's tailgating a search for a missing teenage girl after another one has been murdered. Uh, So yeah, it is grotesque. um, But like, again, you know, talking about the sexual sickness or just the sickness in general of this town, like, yeah, maybe there would be this kind of kook who like, whose entire sense of moral priority is out of whack because she's been stuck in this town forever. Yeah, and we um she alludes she also alludes to something in Camille's past. She says like the they're the same age you were is something that she trails off that she right. says uh to her. And then Camille sort of like you know, and she gives some exposition about uh Christmasina's character, detective uh, Richard Willis, his his marital status, single. Uh thanks Jackie for looking out and says that she's sort of on the outs with with Camille's mom, but she, this is like, this is so clearly an old family friend who knows, um, who knows Camille really well. 
And uh, then we get the moment that we've all been waiting for, which is the actual introduction of Patricia Clarkson in the episode. Camille heads to the house. She does the hiding thing where she's like chewing gum, putting lipstick on, sort of hiding whatever alcohol might be on her breath. Um, we get a flashback to her talking to her younger sister, Marion, and, and we get the clear sort of message from that interaction that Marion is is very ill uh yeah in that scene uh she talks about giving up and going to heaven and all that sort of stuff and then you know she runs through the front door and then bam patricia clarkson's there as adora krellen the uh sort of the richest woman in town uh all right richard give me give me your your patty clarkson report well you know i love patty clarks we all do um she's good again you know this we've spent now probably 25 30 minutes with maybe not quite with Amy Adams doing this muted, s- small, sort of subtle performance, and then Patty Clark swoops in in her house dress and her amaretto sour, and it's just sort of like this different energy. Yeah. But like, I think the show can navigate those energies and kind of weave them together um, in an inter- interesting way because there is a, something kind of fably and fairy tale and outsize about this whole story. Mm-hmm. So like here, here comes the element of that, that like is going to kind of best, I don't know, clarify the sort of dimensions of, of the story being told, you know, like that it's not just about a sort of emotionally repressed woman. It's also about the kind of craziness around her. And I think that Patricia Clarkson as Adora is a sort of fine avatar of that craziness. Yeah. This like femininity, you know, if, if, um, if Camille is some sort of rebellion against traditional femininity and her like black jeans and gray sweatshirt, um, then Adora is just leaning hard into it where like everything yeah. is pink and perfect. Uh, but she has she- an edge to her. I mean, she's not that happy to see her daughter. No. Um, she's sort of like, well, the house isn't, you know, it's too messy for guests or whatever. Like kind of referring to her daughter as a guest, which is, you know, a little bit cold. Right. Um, so yeah, there's obviously a tension between them. Adora clearly is somebody who wants to be seen one way, but actually behind closed doors behaves another. Um, you know, that's pretty, that's established pretty quickly in, in, in this intro scene. Yeah. And, um, we get this, the intro also of Alan, her husband and, uh, you know, just underlining what you said about him being Camille's stepfather. He's like, Camille who? Yeah. Oh Yeah. <laughs> This child yeah. I helped raise. Right, right, right. And then we get this this funny thing that's not in the book and uh, just really kind of cracks me up, which is like Alan's stereo system, <laughs> which is this like space age, like deeply just looks so out of place. I in- believe we would call it a hi-fi. Oh, the hi-fi. <laughs> you know, right? Like it's like, like, it's, like it's, it's old-timey like sound system that, yeah, that he's clearly obsessed with because he's he we see him attending to it very often. Is it old timey? Because it's got like these like like bright neon lights on it. Well, like, it's, it's not old timey in that like in the technology, but like that anyone would have a sort of obsess over their sound system in their home. It just like doesn't doesn't everyone just play everything on the thing? You know, like it right. just it feels it feels like um, again an anachronistic sort of obsession. But it's um, it made me want because it's not in the book. Like first of all, I'm glad that Alan has this like sort of hobby. It sort of helps coalesce his character a bit more for me. But like also, um, it makes me between this and Big Little Lies, it really makes me think about John Mark Valet's uh, like how obsessive he might be about his music because like 
in Big Little Lies, uh, both Adam Scott's character, I think, and then certainly the like um, Reese Witherspoon's daughter's character were like obsessed with music, right? And always playing like really good music. Yeah. And in this, we've got the um, the device that Amy Adams is constantly using to listen to music, and then we've got Alan's um, hi-fi, and. Uh, I, like either Jean-Marc Vallée himself is this kind of person that he's obsessed with music or this is his uh, fun trick of getting music in in a diegetic way into the into the episodes, you know. But either way, yeah. it just I was like, this is another little Big Little Lies thread for me where I'm like, oh, we're going to have fun with this soundtrack. This is going to be yeah. really fun, I think. So, um, And there's this one shot, you know, Camille, Camille goes upstairs to her room this is the most relatable you can't go home again uh, thing for me is she checks her phone and it's like 830. <laughs> like everything. Jesus God. Like, yeah. She's like, get me out of here. It's 830. What the hell? Um, so she sneaks out once again, that sort of like teenage guilty teenage sneaking that she does. But as she leaves, like Alan's still messing with his radio. But if you, there's like just one quick, quick shot of Adora like dancing. Yep. Just just doing her thing on a whatever Tuesday night or whatever. It is. Yeah, eight thirty on a Tuesday, just yeah. like <laughs> she's yeah, she's she's Stephen Stevie Stevie nixing out a little bit herself. Anyway, so uh there appears to be one bar in town. Uh sensors, and this is where Camille goes to get her more adult uh fix of alcohol. The owner is someone that she knew as a kid. Uh, he bought it from a gay couple. and It's implied. He never says it explicitly. He's like, but, you know, they moved to California. We don't get many of their type or whatever. Like, clearly my he favorite, bought it from a gay couple. Yeah. Well, like, my favorite part, I mean, he, so it's meant to highlight, like, his shitty regressive thinking in her, like, you know, big city, St. Louis. Like, she makes some jokes. Because he, he's like, they would eat that one up. And he points to um To the twink John. in the corner. John Keene, who's the brother of of uh, the girl who's missing, yeah. and so then uh, Camille calls him gay bait, uh, but she's like, "Oh yeah, they're always recruiting," and he's like, uh-huh. "Okay, fair enough, all right." Um, and then she's she's sort of like thinking about going to talk to this guy because she's like trying to do her job and and interview people, and uh, this is where um, the detective steps in. He's trying to like kind of flirt with her. She's being very sharp object with him. He's also running interference, though. But also that. Uh, yeah. He says, you're not allowed to talk to uh, a kid without their, you know, parents. So, um, it's a... Uh, I don't know. It's a, it's Which I don't think is actually true of reporters. Yeah, uh, right? I don't know. Like, police we, can't. <laughs> we as reporters are like, I'm not sure. I interviewed sure. teenagers once at VidCon, but their parents were there. And I guess I did ask permission. Yeah. But anyway. I, um... I'll just say that I it's never come up for me. So um, <laughs> you're not interviewing teens on the street about I, Game of Thrones, <laughs> or they're like dead or missing sisters or anything. More like that. that. So um, yeah, and so Camille drinks too much, stays too late, sleeps in her car. Well, it's one of those great um, cuts, pricked awake things because yeah. she's like really head banging to music, and then all of a sudden it's her head, you know, kind of dropping down, and she's she's awake, you know, and it's yeah. it's like early morning. Like, yeah. not quite bright out, but, like, it's a really great cut. It's so good. And um, so she sneaks him back home and she lies, once again, like a guilty teenager, and says, like, lies and says she was getting something out of her car. And this is where we get um, exactly what you were saying, like, this underline of, like, Adora um, not, um, like, the appearance, how important appearance is to Adora and how not 
nice she is about it, how everything is about her. Um, I think the detail in the scene that really drove all of what Adora is home for me is the height of the heels she's wearing in her dressing gown at breakfast. Like, that's. Yeah, totally. And she says, so Amy Adams is like, I'm not a kid. And she's like, well, while you're here, you are. Because, like, everything you do here reflects on me. You know, this kind of infantilized world that Adora has built in this little, in this big dollhouse, um, that we'll get more of as the, the series progresses, a sense of that. Um, yeah, it just establishes a dynamic, um, that is clearly not good. Um, and then we get, uh, we get her breaking down and, and graduating to a larger <laughs> bottle of vodka. She's going to need a bigger bottle of vodka to get through this, this town. Yeah. And, um, there's a great shot of the clerk just checking his watch for like how early it is that she's buying that bottle of vodka. Um, and she heads over to the Nash house. Um, and Nash is the first, uh, kid who went missing. We see her swigging Listerine to cover the alcohol on her breath as she walks into this. And I really liked this scene because I love Will Chase who plays Bob Nash. You're way more of, cause like Will Chase of, uh, smash and, <laughs> Nashville fame. You can stop uh, at Smash. Okay. Just stop. Just Will Chase of Smash. Smashes Will Chase. Smashes he smashes Will Chase. He, Will Chase. Smashes Will Chase. Smashes Deborah Messing in Smash. <laughs> um, is he a? He's a Broadway guy too, though, right? Yeah, yeah. He did. Um, he was Roger in Rent. Uh, oh, for wow. a time, he did Miss Saigon, Full Monty, Aida. He, he, yeah, he's been around. Uh, now he's kind of. As so many Broadway actors do, he's now doing television, um, which is fine. He's got to earn a living. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting role for him because, you know, even in Smash, like he was playing, you know, it was a little lighter. And this is like small town serious, no hint of any musicality about him at all. Um, so, so I'm you sure. don't you... think we're going to see a musical number for him? Well, I'm not going to say anything. I've seen further episodes than you have, but I'm just, just not going to say anything. <laughs> Yeah, he, he um, bops out to the hi-fi. At the, at the, right, right. He and Alan yeah. get down. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I was really, I, I thought he was great in this. Um, Bob Nash as, um, like, if we're following the classic murder mystery sort of, uh, you know, tropes, you know, the parents or the father, usually the young child, is, are always under suspicion, right? So he's yeah. immediately a suspect to us, those yeah. of us who've seen mystery shows before, right? Um, and I think he really rises to that because uh, he's not like so overtly creepy or anything like that, that you're like, oh, it's definitely him or it's definitely not him because he's too creepy. But it's um, the way he talks to his younger daughter who comes in and he talks about like her chart. There's just like enough hints of creepiness and defensiveness um, yeah. that it's, uh, I think really works this it made me think of um you know paradise lost the the documentary series about the 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 the, the kids from west memphis i thought you were talking about milton right now and i was like oh. I can, all right hell no i'm an english i was an english major but i don't know any shit about that right. uh no uh, uh the, but the west memphis three yeah um you know who were com- committed uh, convicted of this murdering these kids and then they it's clear they didn't do it they've since been uh, let out of prison, although they had to do a, an Alfred's plea. And anyway, but um, but suspicion now pretty heavily falls on one of the fathers, mm. um, and so it just kind of like the setting and everything kind of just reminded me of that. It's like that maybe the perpetrator is the closest, you know, man to right. the, the, the perpetrated. I guess. Um, 
I think so. I think I, yeah, having having watched enough Law and Order Criminal Intent, only the Vincent D'Onofrio episodes, I can confidently say that it's always the boyfriend is a phrase that's used a lot in procedurals. That's right. right. Yeah. Um, it's always the dad or the boyfriend or the brother, I guess, uh, perhaps. Um, and uh, Bob Nash said, says a fun thing. He says, uh, he says, am I going to use this word? Yeah, I'm going to use it. Yeah, says, go for it. I give you permission. Thanks. <laughs> he said, faggot did it because he didn't rape her. Um, and this is just like another delightful uh, flavor of what this town thinks of gay people. But also it's an important detail of the case, which is that these women, uh, these or, or this young girl, this one young girl was not sexually assaulted, which is rare, I think, uh, is yeah. the point for a murder. So whoever did it was not, you know, whatever their interests were, it was not sexual uh, necessarily or uh traditionally sexual so okay uh then we get another download from camille to her editor um i i don't know what to make of this he's coughing and i'm just gonna say that like whenever a character's coughing it's not good uh, it's not good i wrote i do not like that in all caps uh in my show notes here um and he's not supposed to be smoking but he is and like the wife is kind of like "Mm," you know like yeah grumbling at him uh yeah it makes me nervous because i like the character and yeah uh, but the coffee right uh she's you know she says you'd better be right and i also think she's just talking about camille and it's like this um his wife says that and it's like this um you know he genuinely does think this would be good for her and his wife seems to be skeptical that that camille can survive this return home uh is sort of what i was reading into that um and then we see I just started I just started calling them the roller girls. We see the roller girls and some teen boys messing with the memorial. Um, John Keane sort of uh, you know, the gay the gay bait from the, the bar is is uh is looking morosely on as they desecrate the uh, memorial to his sister of some sorts. Um, he is played by Taylor John Smith, mm-hmm. uh, who has another Hollywood red redhead connection in that he was ostensibly the lead character in a movie called Wolves, written and directed by Bart Freundlich, who is Julianne Moore's husband. Whoa. Yeah. The Ginger so Network is super strong. It, it, it really <laughs> is. It really is. Um, and But he's on the scene uh, when they discover his sister's body. His sister, Natalie Keene, is found in the alleyway. And the way that it's shot... Um, you know, you hear the scream in the alleyway. Uh, it's the alleyway next to the police station where we've been before. It's very abrupt. All of a sudden, we're just like discovering a body. Yeah, it's there's a scream, and then like um, Camille starts running. The roller girls head that way, and and John Keane stays exactly where he is, and the camera is shot over his shoulder, so it's like his shoulders in frame as you see these people like running towards the body, and he never goes to the alley. Like you don't see him react to the body, and um. So this is the discovery of the second body. So this is officially like a serial murder. We see some blood around the mouth of of this like terrible, gruesome corpse. Um, it almost looks like her teeth have been taken out. Uh, or am does, I wrong? It does almost look like her teeth were taken out. Yeah. I don't think it's overtly stated, but okay. yeah. Um, and, and then we cut to the interrogation room where um, – Richard, I call him Detective Dick is what I got used to calling him when I was reading the book. I don't even think it's like what he's called in the book. I just sort of but liked it's calling him that. But it's referred in the book, isn't it? 
I'm sorry? Detective Dick is used as a term in the book, right? I think so. Anyway, I'm just going to start calling him that because it's fun to say. Um, He, you know, he was sort of lecturing, lecturing Camille in professionality before, but he has brought her some Jack Daniels into the interrogation room and is really trying to drive her home. And she's really not having it. And uh, she's trying to get info and he then high roads her and is like, let's save the games until at least the kids in the morgue or something like yeah. that. Um, and he leaves and she drinks her whiskey and his whiskey, uh, which is, I don't know what I would do probably if I saw a 18 girl in an alleyway. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, and then we cut to Adora pulling her eyelashes out. This is like, we get multiple shots of this in the episode. What do you think of this uh, part? Well, it just, you know, uh, obviously, uh, Camille has her tics, let's say, her little idiosyncrasies. Uh, and clearly, she inherited some of that nervous energy from her mom, who is pulling her eyelashes out, um, which is a which is a nervous tick that a lot of people have. It's I think there's a term for it, actually. Um, people pull out their eyelashes and their eyebrows, um, kind of compulsively. Um, so again, there is a sort of not that there's a that's a dark thing inherently, but there's there's a, a an un, a unrest, a disquiet uh, uh, lurking beneath this kind of polished surface of Adora. It's uh, trichotillomania. Thank you. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's it's just one more sort of like bodily. You know, we talked about Marnie Noxon and her fascination, sort of like with the body. It's just like one more sort of like bodily thing that's like un- it's unsettling to watch. I will say at least not the act of it, but the compulsive nature of it, you know what I mean? So, um, and then, and then we meet Emma for real. Uh, Emma comes down or Emma for fake probably. Yeah. Um, Looking very different than she has on the street. mm -hmm, Literal ribbon in her hair. Yeah. (laughs) Says she didn't introduce herself because she says I can be shy, I guess. I mean, I really love what Eliza Scanlon does, uh, with, with this entrance with this role, which could be so, uh unnatural and weird and she does like it's a little creepy um as it as it should be but like um i don't know i just love the blend of like sweetness and creep to her uh full disclosure i should say eliza scanlon is our vanities um star in the august issue of vanity fair so you can read her interview with our uh, very own Chris Smith on VF.com right now or in the magazine itself. But uh, I'm, I am I think this is great casting. She's Australian. Um, not that that has anything to do with it, but um, I just, I, I really, I really yeah. love her in this role. I really love, I also love the design between her in sort of what she calls her civvies, her roller girl mode and, and this, it's not like so like slutty and trampy or anything like that. It's just sort of like, um, it's just like, why, you know, like when, when, um, Camille sees her and she flashes in a helpful way to the audience to be like, ah, this is the girl in the roller skates I met earlier. Um, she's wearing a, like a flowered tank top, uh, in that earlier scene too. So it's not like, completely off the mark of of what she looks like here in her doll mode but it's like so it's connected but it's different enough and i just i like those juxtapositions Um, yeah yeah so uh and then we we get to see her dollhouse which is this uh perfect replica of of the queen anne Uh, and then tony collette runs in and starts screaming and screaming and yeah it's it's a hereditary scene all over again 
that's a hereditary joke that I don't get because I haven't seen the movie. Oh, before. you haven't? Oh. oh, so she Tony Collette's character makes these like little replicas of her home, and so it's a doll. She makes dollhouses essentially, <sighs> but like as an art project. Um, so there's a lot of creepy dollhouses happening this season. Is there an uncreepy dollhouse like in? Out there in the world, aren't they all creepy? Yes, in my in my in my home, in my, oh. room, my, in my bedroom, <laughs> your personal dollhouse. Yeah. Okay, great. Million little Ben Barneses. <laughs> um, and we, you know, we just get this like interaction between the sisters. We get this uh, further information about Marion, who like died as a child. We get a flashback to the funeral of young Camille, sort of trying to rub the lipstick off of her dead sister's corpse and being pulled out screaming. Um, and all of this stuff and, and the idea that her room is being kept as a museum to her. And it's all very, very creepy, uh, in a really, uh, I think engrossing way. Well done. Just like, just what, I mean, I'm, I think I'm just going to keep saying it. Just what John Mark Valet does with, uh, almost wordless memory Yeah. to convey things. We don't have to, you know, Emma does says that um, does say that Marion died and all of that. That's obvious, but like what Camille felt around that is not something that the adult Camille is going to convey to us at all. We can only get it from the memories inside of her head, you know. Yeah. So all right, Uh, and then last thing, Camille runs. Camille takes a bath, (laughs) in which Camille takes a bath, uh, drinking vodka. And she gets in the back and a bath and there's uh, listening to that music on that device and there's scarring on her body. And we see um, one scar in particular on her forearm. Uh, it says the word vanish, which is the name of the episode. Yeah. So um, what do you she's been, say about she's that? She's been using some sharp objects, I think, on, on her person. It does look like she's been using yeah. some sharp objects on herself for a yeah. long time, given the nature of the scars. So Yeah. Uh, and pretty extensively. Yeah. yeah. Um and I, you know I I don't remember much of the book but I do remember this sort of the word motif for that she would she had carved various words on herself and that always felt like a little lyric you know like a literary gimmicky kind of thing. Um so I'll be curious to see how that sort of functions in the show if it does at all. Um but uh it's a nice it's a good reveal, you know. If anyone was wondering why she's wearing full pants, full sweatshirt you know, up to her wrist in that hog heat. I was about to say hog heat. Hog so heat. The name of the episode should have been hog heat. <laughs> or the show, actually. Amy yeah. Adams in hog heat. Hog um, heat. Yeah. You know, so there. here's why. Because she's, she's, she's literally got things to cover up about herself. She has literal scars from her childhood on her body. Yeah. There yeah. is, yeah, like this very literal, like on the nose aspect to this cutting that, um, and, and like, I don't know. I'm interested when I, when I brought up this book for um, this book club I was doing, I didn't know about the cutting. Um, And um, I had some people like mention that perhaps I should have given a trigger warning about it. And I didn't, um, I didn't know it was a part of the story. It's actually not revealed until like, I would say a quarter of the way into the book. Um, And so the fact that they did at the end of the episode, I think they kind of had to just because like, I think it's something, you know, the same is true of the Amma reveal, the Amma reveal, like she manages to not actually meet her sister as her sister until further on in the book as well. And so I think those are two things she, they sort of had to do in the first episode because there's no way people weren't going to like talk about it in the discussion around the episode. Um, 
so I think it had to come at the end of episode one, but um, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Like I've seen some TV critics um, on, on Twitter sort of talk about the trigger warning of it, but HBO, I think in trying to hold back the reveal, um, does not, you know, sort of mention anything at at the front of the episode, I think, about self-harm, at least not in the screeners we got that could be different in the broadcast version. But um yeah. So this this is a this is definitely a thing. I do think it's a thing that's done for a reason, not just for shock value. And something that I do like is that it uh sort of I think when you first meet Camille in the book and in the show, you're like, oh great, another, you know, alcoholic you know, detective-esque character. We've never seen one of those before. But when you when you find out that the alcohol is really her trying to numb this other thing uh, about her, and, and this is sort of helps us understand some of the references made to recovery possibly earlier in the episode, like mm-hmm. how is she in recovery but still drinking? Um, this would be why, because it's a different kind of um, damage on her. So, all right. Uh, we are running long, so I'm just going to like, keep this like little book reader section at the end short, but this is where we are going to talk about some book reader stuff. Before we get to that though, let me just quickly say, uh, Richard, where can people find your work if they don't want to listen to this next part? Oh, uh, Bryla's on Twitter and VF.com. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's it for right now. Yeah, I am also on VF.com and at Joe wrote this on Twitter. Once again, you can email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. This is where I am going to talk about some book stuff. So please feel free to turn off the episode and hopefully we will see you next week. All right. For those book readers still listening, I just want to mention a few things. The flash of the dirty trunk on the car, that's like it says dirty in in the dust on the trunk of her uh, Volvo. I really liked because that is both like A, of course, something you would do to run down Volvo, but B, a little foreshadowing of uh, the words that she writes on her body. So I just thought that that mm-hmm. was um, really interesting. The, yeah, the inclusion of Jackie saying you were the same age um, makes me think that um, the sexual assault aspect, which is weirdly glossed in the book that Camille was sexually assaulted as a teen is like super glossed over in the book. Um, I think that's definitely going to get much more of a treatment in this. We, we Well, all the stuff with the boys chasing her and, yeah. you know, especially when she's in the cheerleading uniform uh, and you think that she's actually running scared, but then she kind of turns around and smiles a little bit. Like there's, I think the show is clearly building to that in a yeah. way that you're right. The book that, that I remember of the book, it didn't. Um, Rich and I talked a little bit off air about like, how is this book, which is actually pretty slight, uh, in terms of length going to be expanded to, uh, eight episodes of television. And there are ways in which there's like slow build going on, but there are also ways in which I think some stories are going to be fleshed out. That's one. And then the other is, um, I believe, and once again, this is not a spoiler because I haven't seen the further episodes, but I believe based on like stuff in the trailer and stuff we learned in this episode that her time in the like institution and specifically her relationship with her roommate there is going to be a big part of it. Her roommate um, in the book kills herself. And that's once again, a fleeting mention, but this idea of Camille having like lost her sister and then maybe losing this figure who is probably sister like to her. And um, I imagine this is definitely her music that she's listening to and all sorts of like that. Like, I think, I think that's who she saw in the mirror in the motel. So I think that like roommate character uh, who is barely mentioned in the book is going to become like a, of an important figure in these eight episodes. Um, and then 
the oh Camille Camille jokingly in the bar when when Detective Dick tries to block her from talking to John, uh, she says, "Jesus, I was just going to hand on him." Uh, they do have a relationship in the book, so that's like a nice little seed for book readers. And then the last thing is um, the masturbation scene. I, I was like, I was watching it. It's not. I don't recall it being the book, and I was watching it, and I was like trying to figure out why this is so important and and what I figured out the second time I watched it is that um, because of the scarring on her body that she's done to herself um, after her sexual assault, we'll say um, she doesn't have sex. This is a character who doesn't have sex because she doesn't let people see her body. And so her relationship with sex, uh, you know, she's like all but celibate basically. And so her relationship with sex like is masturbation. That's it. And, Mm -hmm. and so like that idea, uh, hadn't really hit home for me and i don't think the book really goes into it but i i was like okay this this is like an important thing time for her because it's like the closest she gets to having sex so and she does it like fully covered and under the covers and all that sort of stuff like she's just so disassociated from her body generally that um you know and and that there's that great shot while she's doing it where she like looks into the reflection of the lamp and she's all distorted and stuff like that. So I don't know. It's really, I'm interested to see where all of that goes. Yeah. Camille's relationship with, with her body and with sex. And- I, I forgot that she had a relationship with John in the book. Um, I, I, don't I, I didn't. Oh, sorry. Spoiler. Um, no, it's fine. I, I mean, I read the book at some point, but yeah, I, I wouldn't call it like that. a relationship, but they, uh, yeah, they have. A- oh, but, oh, that's right. Cause she walks up to him and she goes, you're a sharp object, aren't you? <laughs> Right, right. My, and he's my, like, my. you're a sharp object too. Uh, yeah. yeah, let's be sharp together. Let's um, bank them together. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, those are, those are all things. Overall, the second time through, I really really liked this episode. Um, yeah. And I really really like what so far what they're adding, what they're keeping, what they're maybe sort of sliding over. And I'm excited. I'm really excited to talk about this with you every week. Yeah. Richard, so. It's gonna be good. It'll take us through the summer. Yes, uh, through that the hog heat of summer. <laughs> I might even have to do one from Alaska. I mean, because I'm, I'm I've got plans this summer. So we're, we're all right, gonna, yeah, all right. Uh, and I hope you'll stick with us because you know if we're, we're just doing it for ourselves, we could just do that over G Chat. So. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, once again, you can email us still watching pod at gmail.com if you have any sort of observations. Um, any, uh, if you're in this section, I, I guess you wouldn't send us guesses about the murderer because you know who the murderer is. And we will see you, sharp objects, next week. <laughs>